0: So I almost forgot my timer. You guys would have been up. I don't really pay attention to it anyway, but it looks good if I'm trying to use it, if it if it's up here. So no, seriously, we do have a lot to get to. So I'll quit messing around and, and we'll get going. We're back in Luke chapter four this or yeah, Luke chapter four verses one through thirteen this week. Um, where where last week as we looked at it, we we saw Jesus victorious over temptation in, in the ways that we failed. Jesus has been victorious in his spiritual battle, in the spiritual battle that rages in this world. We all face a spiritual battle ultimately because God stepped in. God started a war instead of just letting us go when we fell into temptation. God started a war on our behalf. He's the one that put enmity between the man or the woman and or the woman's seed and the serpent. He's the one that stepped in and started that. So, so Jesus comes and we see him victorious. It's absolutely imperative for us. To read Luke 4, 1-13, not simply as a practical application, but a foundation for our salvation. In it, we find that, that Jesus really is the Savior. We find that He is capable of being the Savior, that He has fulfilled the qualifications, that He is fulfilling the requirements. And ultimately, we see His ministry begin. This is not a ministry to, to sick people, to the deaf and the hurting or the or the blind and the and the lame. It, it's, it's not a ministry that's that's outward necessarily, but is the primary purpose for his coming to overcome sin and defeat death. There's a lot of things that we could say reasons he came. There's a lot of ways that we could, uh, that, that we could perceive it, a lot of facets to the gem of Jesus' incarnation. We could, we could describe it a number of different ways. John Piper wrote a book, 50 reasons why Jesus came to die. But they're all tied up in this one purpose that he came to defeat sin and overcome death. And, and the reality is, if we had not, if Luke had not shared with us this temptation, this moment with Jesus in the wilderness, or if Jesus had failed, then God couldn't forgive us. We'd have no hope of salvation. Sin would own us and we would all be doomed to destruction. That is the reality of the situation. See, God from heaven can heal. He can, From heaven, he can raise people from the dead. We see him doing it. Even in the Old Testament, before he had come in bodily form, he used his prophets to make people better. He used his prophets to provide people with with, with sustenance. In the, in the New Testament, after Jesus ascends, he uses the apostles in amazing ways, in miraculous and powerful ways, healing people and, and raising people from the dead. I mean, just doing crazy things that would just boggle our mind. He didn't have to come to make that happen. He had to come to live a perfect life so that he could die a sacrificial death that he could eventually raise victoriously. It's imperative that we get this. This is why Jesus came. And if Luke hadn't shared it, if Matthew hadn't shared it, we'd have no record of the fact of, 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 or the, the proof of Jesus' perfect life. We'd have plenty of good works that he did, plenty of good things that he said. But here we see Jesus sinlessly obeying the Father. And that was the purpose the last week. That was the, the view last week. But, we're not moving on because not only is this passage the foundation of our, the work that Jesus does in this, the foundation of our salvation, not only is it that, but there is very practical help as we look. Now, not just that Jesus victorious, but the temptations he faced. There is very practical help. I mean, who doesn't deal with temptation in this room? Who, who in this room is never tempted? We all are. So, so can't all of us who are tempted, so, so all of us that are tempted, can't we benefit from understanding that temptation more, more, more deeply, better? Well, of course we can. Can't, can't we benefit from seeing how the enemy works, how, how he seeks to trip us up? I mean, the truth is this, is that the enemy has really just a small bag of tricks and he uses them over and over and over. It may play out a little differently depending on the circumstances. In fact, the things that Jesus was tempted with, you and I can't be tempted with. Because none of us really have the power to turn a stone into bread, right? I mean, we can't be tempted to rule the world because we know that we're probably not going to rule the world. But the reality is it's the same bag of tricks. Can't we gain? Can't we be better as we strive to follow Jesus? Isn't there practical help in understanding how the enemy works? Absolutely there is. Can't we all benefit from knowing how to actually overcome temptation? Can't can't we grow? Can't Can't we be blessed and benefited with the reality of understanding that temptation is no longer a foregone conclusion for the Christian? Wouldn't it be good for us to know and see that there really is a way in which we might avoid it or turn from it or succeed in the face of it? For the Christian, temptation is an opportunity to do the right thing. No longer is it an automatic death sentence or, or or sentence unto sin. Now it's an opportunity for us to actually obey. To actually do the thing that we should be doing. Well, of course we can benefit from these things. Of course we can. And so that's our focus this week. We're going to really look at those three perspectives. We're going to draw them out of this text and, and we're going to look at the life of Jesus as He faces and does this battle. And we're going to look at these temptations. Striving to... To benefit and be practically blessed, practically helped in our walk, so read with me, if you will. Luke, sorry, Luke chapter four, verses one through 13. <clears throat> and Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, led by this led by --'m um, sorry, slow down. I'm excited, and I can't see as good as I used to. <clears throat> Let me pick my Bible up so the words are closer. And Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness for forty days, being tempted by the devil. And he ate nothing during those days, and when they were ended, he was hungry. The devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, command this stone to become bread. And Jesus answered him, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone. And the devil took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time and said to him, Throw yourself down from here, for it is written, He will command His angels concerning you to guard you. And on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus answered to him, It is said, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. Jesus in the wilderness in, in in a very difficult set of circumstances hungry weak 40 days of not eating I don't know if I mean I don't I don't know if we go even anywhere close this is not like he's on a cleanse you know just for a couple of days trying to get the toxins out he is fasting for 40 days and eats nothing for 40 days weak and in the wilderness he's uh, he's separated from from uh, physical help, but he is led there by God the Spirit, and he is filled up by that same Spirit. And while he's there, Satan tempts him. There's a discussion about this among theologians. There's a, a lot of talk about this. Could Jesus have actually sinned? Was it possible that he would actually sin? And and in doctrinal terms, it's discussing the peccability or impeccability of Christ. Is he is he capable of sinning or not? If if he's not capable of sinning, that's impeccable. If he's capable of sinning, that's peccable. And and there's a lot of discussion on both sides. And the reality is, here's the answer that we all just need to realize: no one knows. Right? There's a, there's good theologians, good views from, from both sides, good discussions. It's us just trying to understand our Savior. So we don't get upset about this when somebody disagrees with us on it. It's, it's a, it's one of those tertiary views. It's like way down the line and we can discuss this. We can remain friends. We don't have to get upset. You don't have to leave a church. It, it's not like an essential, like Jesus had to be perfect. You know, that, it, it's way different than that. But there's a lot of discussion around it. And here's the reason that discussion happens. Because in this text, those who hold to the view that Jesus could not sin, or I'm sorry, those that hold to the to the view that Jesus could sin, that he was peckable, that he, I don't, it sounds weird even saying that, that, that he was able to sin, those who hold to that say that if, if he wasn't, then these temptations weren't real because he wasn't really being tempted. And I personally, I hold to the, the view of impeccability, that he is uh, God. Not not only is he completely human, totally human, he is totally God. And since he is both, it is impossible for him to sin because the God side of his nature, anything he does is righteous. So I, I struggle with the idea that Jesus could have sinned, but, but I understand you, you may even be sitting in this room disagreeing with me. But I would challenge you that if, if your reason for that is simply because you think that these temptations aren't real, I would challenge you that you're misunderstanding the nature of temptation. You're misunderstanding what temptation is. And so before we move any further, as we look at the temptation that Jesus is facing, we need to understand what it is. I mean, what is temptation? What 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 is it? What, 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 what does it look like? And the same word is used in, in, a, in, a, in several different ways, but a couple different ideas, a couple different perspectives are, are um, presented with the same word in the Scripture. First is the idea that there's an enticement to disobey or sin against God. An, an enticement to do something that's evil. A, a, a lure, if you will, to do something that would be evil. Now, it doesn't have to be Satan to do this. Now, we see Satan tempting here. We see Satan tempting Christ. And I, I think that's the reality of that, that battle. I mean, it, it took the chief of sinners, the chief of liars to go and tempt the, the, the chief of righteous, you know, the firstborn, uh, of the righteous. I mean, it, it took, satan to do this work but it doesn't have to be him we can be tempted by all kinds of things we can be tempted by one another we can be tempted by just happening on something in the world i mean we can be tempted by by all sorts of things that anything that would entice towards disobedience we're surrounded by this kind of temptation all the time in a world that is sex saturated and and that is constantly chasing and and promoting a desire for itself and for you to have your own desires That is, we are constantly surrounded by temptation. Temptation in this sense, it's like the lure at the end of a fishing line. It it, it doesn't take a fish to take the bait to make the lure real. The fish doesn't even have to be hungry for the lure to be real, for the enticement, for for, for the presentation, for the opportunity to be there. We wouldn't say that our fishing lures are, are fake or are some some uh illusion. Uh, the same can be said about temptation. It's simply the enticement to or the opportunity for disobedience. The second view, the second way that, that the scripture uses this idea of temptation and, and, and it uses this word, I mean it talks about him being tempted and he's tempting. Uh, he's, he's challenged to tempt God. And it, so, so there's all these ways that, that it could be used, but but the other way is the testing or trying of our faith in God. So there's the view that it's the enticement to disobey God, sin against God, or it's the testing or trying of our faith in God. God does do this. He doesn't entice us to evil, but he does challenge us. He does test our faith. He does. He, he did this with Abraham It's a good, good example. You can read about it in Hebrews 11. He talks about that that Abraham was tested as he was challenged to give up his son. He's not enticing us. When he does this, he's not enticing us to evil, but he's testing to prove our faith. And here's the thing. God knows your faith. He knows whether it's real or whether it's false. Who needs to know how real our faith is? We do. Like, are we really believing him? Like, are... are, are, we talk about knowing him, but are we trusting him? This is a totally different thing. If we believe, if we trust, if we have faith, we'll act on it. It'll be natural to act on it. If we don't, we won't. So Abraham, facing this challenge with his son, Abraham, sacrifice your son to me. If Abraham trusted God, he would obey him. If Abraham didn't trust God, what would he have done? I can't give you my son. That you you gave him to me. I mean he's a gift to me. He's so important to me. It tests our faith. It strengthens our faith. We'll deal with this in just a little bit through James. I mean, James talks about the way that that these trials come to us. It's the same exact word in James that he's using. These trials that we're supposed to take joy in, that strengthen us, that grow us and, and mature us and make us more like Christ. There's these two views of temptation, but neither is ultimately dependent upon the heart of a person. They're dependent upon the intention of the one tempting, the one testing. John Owen got this. He understood this, this dual view, this these two sides of temptation, and he wrote it this way. Uh, he says, So temptation is like a knife that may either cut the meat or the throat of a man. It may be his food or it may be his poison, his exercise or his destruction. Temptation in the sense that Scripture uses it shouldn't be equated with sin <laughs> or, or, or even without at the same time. Let me say it like this. Temptation shouldn't be equated with sin without at the same time being equated with the exercise of our faith. It's both things. Scripture sees it both ways. The distinction of whether the difference and whether it strengthens us or destroys us is determined one by the one who's bringing it to us and to our desire. Let me show you that in James. Now, I don't have the verses on the screen. I'd encourage you to pull your Bible out. Uh, James is is, uh, in the New Testament. If you're not familiar with it, James is in the New Testament, and it's right after Hebrews. If you get to Revelation, you've gone too far, just flip back a few short books. James chapter 1. Let me just show you this. He says, James chapter 1, verse 2, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. Now, that word trials is the same word that he's going to, that's going to be translated later as being tempted. It's the same exact word in the Greek. So you could read it, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet temptations of various kinds. Why? For you know that the testing, it's again, it's another form of the word, the testing of your faith produces steadfastness and let steadfastness have its full effect and that it may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing, so that your faith can be grown. That's the purpose of temptation or temptation, as God uses it. But look what happens. Skip down to verse 13. In verse 13, he goes on and he writes... Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. So God can't be tempted. He can't be enticed to do evil, nor does he entice anyone to do evil. That's the same exact word that he had just used, but the context helps us see that there's another reason for it being offered. There's a, there's a reason that he's showing us this. God doesn't entice us to do evil, but he does test us to strengthen us. This is the two ideas. But look at what goes on. He goes on to say, he picks it up in verse 14. But each person is tempted. He's enticed towards evil when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Temptation is external to us. It has no power over us. It's our desire that does something with it. Look at verse 15. Then, so each person's tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. 15, then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. So here's the reality of these temptations that Jesus faced. They were absolutely real. They were absolutely opportunity for him to sin. But Jesus would never, could not sin because he had one ultimate desire. And it wasn't himself. It was the glory of his Father. You see, our desire is what makes us struggle with temptation. How we respond to temptation is determined not by the reality of the temptation but the desire of our hearts as we are faced with the temptation. And so when we come to temptation, when we have an opportunity for evil, what do what the desires of your heart do? What's happening within you? See, so here's why we struggle with seeing Jesus as, 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 as distinct or different in, in temptation. Here's why we would say, well, if he couldn't sin, then, then these aren't real. Because we struggle with separating our desire from the temptations we face. Because the desires of our flesh wage war against our souls. That's First Peter chapter 2, verse about 12. The desires of our flesh wage war against our soul. Our lusts lead us to, to long for things that are evil and, 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 and opposed to God. That's who we are in our very nature. Jesus never had that struggle. But Jesus would be proven perfect because he had only one desire. John Owens goes on in writing, writing about temptation. He goes on, and it's another section of his book. He writes, Temptations and occasions put nothing into a man, but only draw out what was in him before. So, Jesus didn't sin because he had no desire in him except for the glory of his Father. We fall to temptation because we desire so many other things than him. But because of Christ, because of the hope we have in him, because of his perfection, we can now face trials, tests of various kinds. Knowing that it doesn't have to destroy us, but it can strengthen us. See, this is what temptation is about. This is the biblical perspective. This is is how the Bible handles temptation. And Jesus facing off against the devil was truly being tempted. I mean, just look at verse 2 in the passage in Luke. He says, For 40 days being tempted by the devil, and he ate nothing during those days, and when they were ended, he was hungry. There's a real desire for some food at that point, right? I mean, nobody's, nobody's, it's like stating the obvious. Nobody's surprised when they come to that and they're like, he was hungry. Wow, I bet he was. And what does Satan do? He puts an opportunity in front of him. But Jesus never had a desire for anything but the glory of God of his father that is temptation at its core as you face temptation as you face temptation please know this it is external to you your desires are what determines what you'll do with it your desires are what determine what you'll do with it you'll either be strengthened by it or it will continue to eat away at your soul let's keep going so the next thing, the next thing. So so now we understand we have a better, I think, a, a better understanding of temptation. If I did my job, we have a better understanding of temptation. But how then, how can we benefit, how can we be better by understanding how the enemy works? Or how how does the enemy work and how can that help us? Well, he's got one bag of tricks. Let's just look at what he does. And so we pick it up in verse uh, verse 3. The devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, command this stone to become bread. And Jesus answered him, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone. What's he doing? He's coming to Jesus. He's exploiting his weakness. He's coming to him in a time where everything else, I mean, there's there's one thing, it would seemingly be one thing on his mind. I'm hungry, it's time to eat. Who else is led by the desires of their belly that way? I mean, I'm not talking about just food, but the desires of our, of our flesh, just longing for something. I just want it. It's got to have it. So I give myself, I do whatever it takes to get it. He exploits our weaknesses. We are weak and feeble. I don't like admitting that. I'd love to say that I got it all figured out, that I got big wide shoulders, I can carry it, I I can take care of business, get in my way, I'll take care of you. That's what I, that's in my flesh, that's the man I'd like to be. But when I'm honest with myself, I recognize the insecurities, the the, the thoughts that, that eat away at me, you're not good enough, you're not He exploits us in our weakness. I'm thankful that I can say that I have one that's been strong for me. He entices us to live selfishly to be our own God. Now, when Satan first tempted Jesus, he, he, he says this, he, he encourages him to do the one thing he didn't come to do. Jesus didn't come for himself at all. The whole incarnation is wrapped up in humility of giving himself up. He came to serve and not be served. He came to obey the will of the Father, not to go his own way. So if if he had exercised his power because he's hungry, he'd have been serving himself. Not once do we see him exercising his power simply to protect himself. He always has the will of the Father in mind. And so when the enemy came to him, enticed him to live selfishly, hey, use your power, you're God's son. Use your power. Turn that stone to bread and have it. Bread's not a bad thing. I mean, eating bread's a good thing, right? I mean, there's nothing wrong with it. It would have been wrong for him to use his power to serve himself it would derailed God's plan and it would have been Jesus seeking to serve himself and be God unto himself apart from the Father. He tempts us to do the exact same things. He invites us into doubting God's provision. And Jesus saw it. I mean, he understood it. He, he knew what was at the heart of what, what Satan was tempting him. And so when he, when he answers, it is written that man shall not live by bread alone. He he sees that that here the devil is just simply trying to get him to, to act on his own, to be his own man, to do his own thing. And and we don't live by bread alone. The reality is 40 days without food, I, it'll kill most of us. I might be able to get by. Some of you wouldn't make it a couple weeks. But I'm just, just saying, I might make it. But the reality is, is that in our own being, We are not ever living simply because we ate a meal. You get that? See, we think we need food to eat. We think we need water or food to to live. We think we need water to live. We think we need air to live. We think we need all of these things. But truly, if God decided, if God chose to sustain you without them, you would live. You see, we live at the Word of God. We live at His decrees and His decisions. We need nothing but Him to say we live for us to live. We need nothing but for Him to say we die to die. We could be as healthy as a horse. And I don't even know how healthy horses are, but we could be as healthy as one and still die. Because God has determined that we live no longer. But Satan would have us believe that we are self-sufficient. He entices us. He invites us into doubting God's provision. He speaks half-truths with lies. The second temptation, he comes down in verse five and it's like the devil took him up, showed him the kingdom of the world in a moment. It's like, I, I picture like Google Earth when you're speeding away from the world, you know, or, or you're kind of speeding towards it and you're seeing all of this stuff. That's kind of what I picture in my mind. I don't know what it looked like. Nobody really does. But here's Satan, and he's like, I will give you all this authority. I'm going to give it to you all. Every every bit of it's yours. It's been given to me. Sort of. Here's the reality. Satan and his demons are nothing but dogs on a leash. They only run as far ahead of the master as he allows. They only do what He allows. And, and I'm telling you, if He says heal, they heal. They are dogs on a leash. Allowed a time, allowed room to run for God's purposes. But that is not totally true. Satan doesn't own this. He has no right to give it away. He gets to exercise some authority in it. There's all kind of ways that He speaks half-truths. He entices us with shortcuts to achieve God's plan or receive God's gifts. I mean, that's what he's doing. Jesus was going to be king of the world. Jesus is going to have all authority. And Satan's like, here, here's the easiest path. You just, just kneel down, kiss my ring. I don't know if there's really a ring on it. I don't know, but just worship me. You know, it's so simple. Just give up all who you are. It's not a big deal. Just worship me. I'll give it all to you. Not only does he not have the ability or the right to give it away to anybody, but he's got a better plan for you. Like if you'll just if you'll just take this shortcut, it'll be easier. It'll be better. We do this all the time. Think about the way we use sex in our culture, the way we att- have sex in our culture, the way we promote sex in our culture. Whatever feels good to you. like That's what God wants. He wants you to be happy. No, God has a design for sex. One man, one woman inside a monogamous marriage relationship. That's his intent for sex. Anything outside of that, mono, hetero, homo, anything outside of that is sin. But Satan has led us to believe that it's a good thing. He's always enticing us to take shortcuts, to achieve God's plan or receive God's gift. He would have Jesus forsake the cross so he could have his crown. He encourages us to give our lives and worship to something or someone other than God. Just worship me. Jesus wouldn't be fooled by this. He knows what's at the heart of that temptation. Satan would much prefer we devote our lives to anything other than God. He really wants to be the devotion of our. He desires to be worshipped, and Jesus isn't going to have it. It's not about that life. He will only ever worship the Father with His life and with His actions, with all that He is. His devotion is God's. He, the enemy, twists God's word. When when Jesus is receiving these temptations, when he is being faced with these temptations, and he's answering, he's answering with God's word. And Satan, in this third in this third temptation, Satan's like, "Ah, oh, you're going to use God's word? Well, I can use God's word too." So he twists it, and he begins to speak about what God has promised. And and again, there's there's a bit of truth, but it's used out of context. It's 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 said from the wrong perspective. It is imperative. It is imperative that we know the word. We need to know the word. Your enemy knows the word, and he will use it against you. He will twist it to make it sound good, like you can have your best life now. That is a lie from the devil. If you are suffering as a Christian, you must be disobeying God. That is a lie from the devil. Temptation begins. We are made enemies of the devil when we are made holy unto God. Expect difficulty. Expect trial. Take joy in your trials. He will twist God's word to make you believe that if you don't have wealth and health, that in some way you must not believe enough. That is a lie of the devil. Do not believe it. God will allow us to be tempted and tried that we might be strengthened. And there are preachers who stand in pulpits saying that they're Christian who are party to this. Do not be deceived. Sorry. This is vital. He doesn't have to deceive us. He doesn't have to try hard to deceive us with the Word because He entices us with everything but the Word. We spend vast amounts of time binging on shows on Netflix. I'm guilty. I, I, I watched uh, Making of a Murderer in about two days because I saw, I saw one and it was like weeks later. I was like, man, that was disturbing. And then I watched the second one and I was like, you got to be kidding me. I don't know if you guys have seen it. Don't start it because it would ruin you. <laughs> it ruined me. I mean, like two days, I was staying up late at night. It's crazy. Oh, we got so much access to information, so much access to just entertainment, and all the while he's sitting over here with through through, through preachers, so-called preachers, twisting God's word, making us feel good, tickling our ears, and deceiving us all the while. Don't be deceived. He tempts us to command God rather than to submit to God. In this third temptation, that's ultimately what he's coming down to. He's like, hey, you go up to the temple and you jump off and God will save you because he's promised to. So that's like you and me saying, hey, God, you promised if I seek you first that you're going to give me everything I need. So if, if I go to church every Sunday and I go to community group every Wednesday, Thursday, whatever night you go, and, and I read my Bible, and I pray a certain number of hours a week, that means you've got to give me the job I want and the paycheck I feel like I deserve and the car in the garage that measures up to my standard. I'd like to tell you what I think that is, but I don't think that would go over well. It's a lie. We have no place standing above God telling Him what to do or acting in authority over Him, or taking His promises as if we can leverage them before Him. Especially, especially when we're twisting them into meaning something different. Can you count on God's promises? Yes. Can you pray and speak to God about His promises? Absolutely. Can you expect Him to fulfill His promises? Yes. But don't be so foolish as to go out into the middle of a highway and say God's going to protect me because I'm a child of His. He may have very well chosen that be the opportune time to prove to you and everyone else that He cannot be commanded. Finally, last one, He tempts us to doubt our identity in Christ. Over and over as, as Satan approaches Jesus You're his son. You're his son. It's the very thing that God had said as he was baptized. It's the very thing that Luke proved through the genealogy in chapter 3. And he's doing it to us over and over and over again. He doesn't really love you because of this. You're not even lovable because of this. If you were God's child, He would be doing this. We sang that song. I, I didn't know we were singing that song, but we sang that song. I, I, we're not, not slaves any longer. We've been freed. We need, to, we, need to, we need to say that line, I am a child of God. That needs to be the, the words that come out of our mouth, the thoughts that penetrate our heart the truth that that, that sustains us in the wilderness. We are His children. He is our Father. Don't Don't let the enemy and don't let anyone else ever tell you different. That's how our enemy attacks. That's what temptation is. Now, finally, this is the shortest section, how did Jesus overcome? I'm just going to say it. Jesus never felt to temptation because He had one ultimate desire that could not be overridden or undermined. It could not be overridden and it could not be undermined. It could not, it could not be trumped. It could not be dug away at. The glory of the Father. Jesus never felt a temptation because his primary desire was the glory of his Father. Nothing would get in the way of that. Absolutely nothing would take its place. The Spirit was filling him with power, even in a time of weakness. And Jesus' Jesus' nature was given completely and wholly to living in submission to and for God the Father. Did he desire other things? Yes, absolutely he desired other things. He wanted to eat. I guarantee you after 40 days feeling hungry, he wanted to eat. We all would. But he didn't desire it more than he desired the glory of God the Father. He desired his crown. He desired the, the crown that he'd come to put on, the victory that he came to win. He desired that, but not outside the plan of his Father. He desired his Father to protect him, but not so much to presume on him and to put him to the test, commanding him to action. Jesus never desired anything more than he desired God the Father to be glorified. We know that, and we see it happen, not only here, but even in the Garden of Gethsemane as he faced the day of death, the day of the cross, he faced it, and he prays, and he, he tells his apostles, my soul is weary, I'm grieved to the point of death. And he goes, and he prays by himself, and he, said, and he prays this, it says in Matthew 26, 39, going a little fa- farther, he fell on his face and prayed, saying, my Father, my Father, if it would be possible, let this cup pass from me. Jesus didn't absolutely desire the cross. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. But He did absolutely desire the will of His Father. He desired your salvation. He desired the glory of God the Father. He desired the mission that God had sent Him on. He wouldn't take a shortcut. He wouldn't be led astray. He wouldn't be tempted away because ultimately He desired His Father to be glorified. If we're going to stand a chance to ever doing the right thing, if we're going to look at temptation in the face and see it as an opportunity to not sin, to honor God, we're going to have to follow in His example. Psalm 37.4, I think the psalmist sums it up well for us. It's something you're probably familiar with. Delight yourself in the Lord and He will give you the desires of your heart. You know, so often we we listen to the second half of that verse and we don't even think about the first half. Delight yourself in the Lord. He will give you the desires of the heart. And and we think about this and we think, oh, well, that means I can have whatever He wants me to have. I'm going to be healthy, wealthy, and wise. I'm going to have it all. And you're going to define that differently than I will. But we often miss that first piece. Delight yourself in the Lord. When the Lord is your ultimate desire, the Lord you will receive. That's what he's saying. Let me encourage you to consider it in terms that Richard Sibbs advises on temptation. Richard Sibbs is a Puritan writer, theologian. He says Satan gives Adam an apple and takes away paradise. Therefore, in all temptations, let us consider not what he offers but what we shall lose. You know, we, 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 can pres- we, we can pursue the second half of Psalm 37 the desires of our heart. And if the delight is in the Lord, we gain everything. But if the desires of our heart are the things of this world, to be our own God, to take a shortcut unto His plans and provisions, to, to command Him instead of obey Him, We lose everything. What are we losing as we fall into temptation? I would suggest that many in this room, let's just be real, many of us are not experiencing the fullness of the joy of our salvation because we are being deceived and we are falling face first into temptation because our desires are more for the things of this world than for the things of God. Let's be honest. Let's test ourselves. What do you give your time to? Seriously. What's the, what's the expanse? 24 hours a day, seven days a week, 365 days a year. What does it demonstrate your devotion is to What does it demonstrate you worship? What does it demonstrate that you trust in? What do you spend your money on? if we were to open up your checking account and look at the the statement, and I'm not suggesting I'm going to do that or I'm even going to try, but I would encourage you to. What does it demonstrate is your God? What are you being tempted by? What are you being deceived on? What are you losing? What are you missing out on? Because you have fallen face first in the temptation. You can overcome You no longer have to be deceived. We have the opportunity to do the right thing. What are you expending your energy for? Now we'll go out of our way for all kinds of things. And when it comes to things of the Lord, I often see in myself and in others a willingness just to sacrifice that stuff because He'll understand. And what that says is he doesn't mean as much as these other things do. Like we'll put all kinds of things on hold to make sure we see our show or able to binge watch our Netflix. Read my Bible? Uh, he'll understand. I'll hear a sermon on Sunday. Oh, Sunday comes along. I, and I pretty tired. I was out late last night. I probably just better save up some energy for Monday. What are we losing out on because we're falling into temptation? What is the desire that's behind the things you do, the things you spend your money on, the things you give your time to? Is it driven by a delight in God, a desire for the things of this world? There's only one way to overcome temptation. And that's to displace every other desire. Not necessarily to get rid of it, but to displace it, to get it in the right priority below God. How we respond to temptation. Let me just close with where we were at at the beginning. How we respond to temptation is determined not by the reality of the temptation, but the desire of our hearts as we're faced with the temptation. What are you missing out on? What could you be enjoying if you could delight yourself fully in the Lord? Let's pray. Father, I, I, I just ask in this moment for conviction, for testing, for trying that we might be strengthened You know my fallenness, Father. You know my fallen desires, my fleshly longing. Would you forgive me? Spirit, will you fill me? Will you make me able to say yes to the right things and no to those things that would dishonor or be in rebellion towards God. And as I fall, Father, and as I struggle, would you remind me that Jesus, Jesus won for me, Jesus won for us. We need you. We are needy, weak, and feeble. Jesus, thank you for fighting on our behalf. Would you strengthen us that we may stand, that we may persevere, that we may endure in this battle. Spirit, fill us now that we may do as we've been called to do. All these things I ask in Jesus' name, amen.